Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that we would receive uh, the gospel word as your word, the word of the living God. And we do pray that we would know it's good work in our lives, that it would help us to trust the Lord Jesus for eternal life and equip us through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training uh, to live lives which honour you through doing the good works you have called us to do. And help me, we pray, to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what kind of community would you want to belong to, be associated with? One that didn't care about how people treated each other within it? Uh, one that had on the books high standards of behaviour, but was indifferent to whether members kept them or not? One that, alternatively, as soon as you failed once to keep the rules, that was it, you were out one that encouraged gossip about pu and public shaming of those who deviated from accepted standards. Now, to ask those questions, of course, is to answer them. We wouldn't want to be part of a community that was indifferent to how people treated each other or encouraged hypocrisy by proclaiming standards and never bothered about whether they were kept. And we'd find it hard to be in a community that showed no grace, that policed conformity by fear and shame. Or, actually, we might find it easy to go along with that until we were the one that slipped up. Those kind of communities drive people away. People whose wrongs are not addressed, who have who leave hurt and embittered by the treatment they've received at the hands of others, or people who've done wrong and can find no way back, excluded forever. Now, Jesus' community, the community of the king, is one where, taught by Jesus, there are very high standards. The Lord Jesus said to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he described that righteousness, turning away from anger and pursuing reconciliation, saying no to lust even in our minds, faithfulness in marriage, keeping our word, generosity in our treatment of others even when they wrong or impose on us, loving even our enemies. The community of King Jesus has very high standards of behaviour expected of his followers. But it's also a community that doesn't want any driven away, where every member, even the most humble, is precious. Where God wants, as we heard in verses 10 to 14, the straying brought back to the flock where we heard Jesus say, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So how can we be a community of imperfect people, yet committed to the perfect teaching and example of our perfect Saviour? How can we be a community real about righteousness while not driving any away? How as a community can we, people who will fail and offend, insist on high standards without breeding hypocrisy, partiality and legalism? How can we be that community Jesus wants us to be, where none are driven away, 
and the straying are brought back. Well, Jesus gives the answer in Matthew 18, 15 following, the passage we heard read. Verses 15 to 20, we are to be a boundaried community. That is, a community with clear behavioural boundaries where if someone insists on persistently ignoring or breaking those boundaries, they place themselves outside the community. A boundaried community where, as we heard, every member is active to maintain the standards. But not as we here in verses 21 to 35, a limited community. Instead, we're to be a community without limits on forgiveness because we know ourselves to be the community of the greatly forgiven. And it's being a boundaried but not limited community that will be the community that we'll be glad to belong to as Jesus followers, a community in which we can each grow as Jesus followers. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If your brother or sister sins against you. Notice it's not if your brother or sister offends you or if someone makes you feel bad. Jesus says if your brother or sister sins against you. And that tells us a couple of things, doesn't it? Firstly, Jesus is concerned in this instruction for the sinning individual and their good. You see, what will cause someone to stray from Jesus' flock? What will cause, verse 14, one of these little ones to perish? Well, it's actually sin persisted in. Hear the warnings given to the church in, the, in, the, in Paul's letters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Or again in Ephesians, know and recognise this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Persistent sinning excludes us from God's kingdom. Jesus wants a community that is real about stopping sinning because that's what causes people to perish. He doesn't want sin to go unaddressed. Oh, and secondly, what Jesus says here tells us that we relate to each other on the basis of objective standards of right and wrong not on our own subjective feelings of how we may or may not want to be treated. It's God who tells us what constitutes sin, tells us in his word. Sin is missing the mark, falling short of God's standards, not ours or the ones our community may have made up. We don't create the boundaries of the behaviour that's acceptable in the community of King Jesus. He does by his teaching, teaching that fulfills all the law and the prophets. So the question we have to ask of our treatment by others, especially if we feel hurt, is, is it right? Does it conform to the way the Lord Jesus says we should live? A trivial example. I might have been hurt, and those of you who know me know that actually this is entirely untrue, but I might have been hurt, offended by someone forgetting my birthday. 
But is that a sin? Oh, I might be angry about someone not turning up on time, but was it sin? And, of course, the answer to that may be the cause of their being late. I mean, a thoughtlessness that makes them break their word all the time, that's sin. But getting a flat tyre ten minutes from your destination isn't. Oh, I might have liked, I, I might not have liked what someone said to me, but was it sin? Or might it be the truth said for my good? The issue is sin. And sin isn't making you feel bad. It's missing the mark of Jesus' standards in action or word. It's good to be clear about that because it actually keeps us focused on our responsibility. You see, while we have to consider the feelings of others, in the end we can't be responsible for another person's feelings because who knows what else is going on in someone's life. But we can be responsible for our words and actions. And when you're wrong, there there may be a place for telling someone how their words and actions made you feel. It may help, should help them understand the hurtfulness of the wrong they've done. But the sin isn't making you feel bad. It's the wrong the person has done that has then made you feel bad. And it's the wrong you must rebuke. And notice Jesus says if someone sins against you, And so your engagement with the sinning person is not based on hearsay but personal experience. You see, Jesus isn't licensing here a kind of moral vigilantism where believers go around sniffing out sin in the lives of others. He's actually talking about having real relationships with our brothers and sisters in the community of Jesus' people, a community that's committed to living Jesus' way and loving each other enough to help each other continue living Jesus' way. For that's actually what rebuking the person who has sinned against you is about. It's about love. Jesus is calling on his people to practice what God commanded the people of Israel. Leviticus 19.17 Do not harbour hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbour directly and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbour as yourself. See, when you're sinned against, there's to be no letting being wronged fester into hatred or grudges. And because you love the other person as yourself, there's to be no letting them continue in sin sin which will exclude them from Jesus' people. And as we see in verse 16 of 19, and here, go and rebuke him in private, there is to be no public shaming. Addressing sin starts with the individual sinned against. If you sinned against, says Jesus, take it up with the person who sinned against you. Don't run to someone else. Take it up for the good of the offender to stop them sinning and for your good so that you stop nursing the hurt or you just decide it's all too hard and drift away. You rebuke them. That is, you show them how what they have done or said is inconsistent with what our Lord Jesus has taught us and you call on them to change. Now this is the responsibility of each one of us in relating to our brothers and sisters 
We can't be indifferent to their sin or lazy in addressing it because sin is serious. But having recognised it's the responsibility of each of us, we also have to recognise that there are some circumstances where it is not the responsibility of the wronged person to take it up with the person who has wronged them and it would be wrong to insist that they do. You see, in context, Jesus is talking about relationship between brothers and sisters. That is, while it will be awkward, there is an assumed equality in the relationship. But that's not always the case, is it? People can be in dependent relationships, for example, children to parents. Or people can be in relationships of significant power imbalance, like many wives in abusive relationships. Or people can be in situations of repeated threats and harm where it's unsafe to rebuke the person wronging them. Even in churches, there may be a significant power imbalance that can make someone feel unable to rebuke the person wronging them. For example, the person doing the wrong might be a minister or elder and they mightn't even be aware of the power imbalance, but it still exists. And the wrong still needs to be addressed, for sin is serious, and in these circumstances can be even more destructive. In these situations, it's actually right for the person who's been wronged to raise it with another, to seek help and sometimes protection maybe raise it with another believer or with a pastor or elder, another pastor or elder, or as you can hear, raise it with Safe Church and the numbers are out there on the notice board. We're a community committed to Jesus' standards and sin by anyone can't be tolerated. Now, Lord willing, you rebuke your brother and sister and they listen and they heed and you stop, they stop, they change their behaviour, everything's good, you've gained your brother or sister. That is, you've kept them in Jesus' flock and that's a wonderful outcome. But because sin is about objective right and wrong, if the person doesn't listen to you, there's a next step. If he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So you go with two or three others to rebuke this sin. So we're not to give up if rebuffed because sin is serious. It kills, it excludes from Jesus' people. So you support your understanding that the action of the offending person was sin by taking two or three others, people who can say, look, this is not just a matter of personal opinion. It's not just because Neil's a really sensitive person. What you did was wrong. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to take money for a job and not do it. Or even it's wrong to treat a parent disrespectfully. Jesus' community, you see, is to practice what was taught in Deuteronomy. That conviction should come with two or three witnesses. But here witnesses not to the sin but to the understanding from Scripture that the behaviour is sinful. Now, taking two or three others does escalate the situation, make it more serious. You know, you've subjected your sense of offence to the scrutiny of others and the other person is now exposed, in a sense, to the judgement of others. So why involve others and not just sweep it under the carpet? Well, it's because others are involved. The sin of any believer affects the whole community. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. 
persistent sin, even if it's against just one believer, is a community issue. It affects others and taking others recognises this, that sin in the community of Jesus' people is not just a private, personal matter. And of course, taking through other, two to three others gives another opportunity for repentance, for the offending brother or sister to be kept in Jesus' people. It says to them, you can't shrug this off, just think it's that person being sensitive or that it doesn't matter. And hopefully this going with others jolts them out of their complacency, gives them conviction that they have done wrong. But what to do if the offender still won't listen, if they stubbornly insist on their right to do as they please. Well, it is a community concern and now the whole community is to make clear that this behaviour, this lying, this failing to pay your debts, that this behaviour is sin. And it really is a community concern for not only does the sin imperil the life of the believer, threaten them with perishing, Persistent sin harms the Christian community if not confronted, suggesting to others that this sin's not serious or that they don't need to pray a price to deny themselves this sinful behaviour. And so persistent sin threatens the holiness of God's people. And letting it be thought that you can be a member of Jesus' community while openly disobeying his teaching actually undermines the rule of Jesus through his word amongst his people and so threatening their identity as Jesus' people. And persistence in can shame, bring shame on the community in the world, especially if it's a behaviour the world despises or at least it can expose the community as hypocritical. So our Lord says if he doesn't pay attention to them, verse 17, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. If there is persistence in, persistent disobedience to Jesus' word, the whole church is to take action. Now we usually do this through the elders and often in private to promote the opportunity of repentance if it's a private offence. But at times it has to be a public process for the good of all. Now, of course, that is very serious for everyone involved. But Jesus expects the church to take action for the good of the offender because sin is deadly, but also for the good of the community, its reputation and well-being, and for the good of the world to preserve the reputation of the saving message amongst them. Now, the action anticipated is dissociation, disassociation most clearly seen in exclusion from the Lord's Supper. Jesus says there to be like a Gentile and a tax collector, people who are outside the community of God's people who had no part in its life. And this action makes clear to the offender that you cannot continue in disobeying Jesus and reckon yourself a part of Jesus' people, reckon you amongst those saved by Jesus. In fact, this is so important, so important that the offender gets the message that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. You see, it's not love to let someone think they'll be okay at the judgment 
because they trust Jesus. When their behaviour says they aren't part of Jesus' people and they won't be okay. And disassociation makes it clear both to other believers and to the world that Jesus' people have nothing to do with this kind of behaviour, whatever it is. And then the Lord continues by making it clear that the judgments of the church, where they conform to the gospel, are the judgments of God. I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Will have been bound, will have been loosed, tells us that in conforming the behavioural boundaries of the church of Jesus' community to scripture, the church is ratifying, administering the judgments of the heavenly court. What is already bound or loosed there, already forbidden or permitted. Now this is a reminder that the standard of our life together has to be the word of God, that our life together has to be regulated by what Jesus taught because that's what it is to be a disciple. Remember Matthew 28, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And it's also a reminder of the seriousness of the church's decision. For conform to scripture, they are the judgments of God. Now, it doesn't mean the church's judgment's final, for the next part of the chapter tells us that there's always forgiveness for the repentant, but it is serious. And verse 19 reinforces that. If two or three, says Jesus, on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. See, the judgment again is not just the judgment of one. But where it's agreed by God's people and they commit their judgment to the Lord, it will be done for them by our Father. And where they are praying, even as they exclude from fellowship, for the repentance of the offender. Well, again, there is a good assurance that their action will have its goal of not letting anyone perish. And again, verse 20 brings home the seriousness of what's being done and that the church belongs to Jesus, for he is present amongst us. Now, we see that actually in the book of Revelation, don't we? Revelation 1, 2 and 3, where Jesus stands amongst the churches, stands amongst them to both support and pronounce judgment. Our Lord is actively concerned for the health and reputation of his people, and he wants us to live as his people. Now, that should be an encouragement for all of us who want to live as his people. We can rely on his help. But it's also a sobering warning to all who want to live in the church as if they are the boss and it's kind of their club, their possession. Jesus expects his community to have clear behavioural boundaries. That's not to be a place where sin is tolerated. Behaviour inconsistent with being his must be addressed, and remember verse 15, by each one of us. Now that's going to be a challenge, because if we live by Jesus' word, we will be increasingly differentiated from the world, different from the society around us whether that's in our sexual morality as it was in the first century or our insistence on integrity or our rejection of greed or our insistence on kindness and love in our dealings with all in any number of ways. And there's going to be pressure always 
internal and external, to not maintain those boundaries, those behavioural standards that Christ has given us. In fact, you can see some examples of internal pressure in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, not wanting the status, not wanting to act because of the status of the person or fear of litigation or because actually... <laughs> Most people in many in the congregation actually accept and want to keep on practicing the sin. And there'll be external pressure too to not maintain Christ's boundaries, whether it's legislation or threats of withdrawal of funding. And, and we might be personally reluctant to rebuke sin, remembering Jesus' warning about the log and the speck conscious of our own sins. But the Lord's not here talking about looking for sin in others, but how to respond when sin has found you, when you have been sinned against. So despite pressure and reluctance, individually and collectively, we should practice what Jesus teaches here because he teaches it and he teaches it for our good. And it is for our good. It is good to live Jesus' way. It's the way of human flourishing. It's good to love our enemies. It's good to control our anger and seek reconciliation. It's good to live sexually pure lives. It's good to be true to our world. Jesus' way, his righteousness, is good. And maintaining Jesus' boundaries maintains us as Jesus' flock, where he decides who's in and out. And brothers and sisters, we are nothing. We are not even a good human club to belong to if we are not Jesus' people. And, of course, it's good. Good to act because sin kills. Good to take sin seriously, to insist that sin be repented of because that's good for the offender, good for the congregation and good for the world who shouldn't be confused about what it is to follow Jesus nor be turned off by bad behaviour being tolerated and we've seen a bit of that. Now when we think and talk about this, we often become focused on the most serious end, don't we? You know, dealing with the persistent and open sin and dissociation from those who persevere in their sin. But actually the determination to not let any perish because they keep on sinning starts with each one of us. Each of us having relationships with each other that allow us to bring up behaviour and to hear others speaking to us about our behaviour. It starts with each one of us actually being like the psalmist. Who can pray, let the righteous one strike me. It's an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. And so it's good to ask yourself, are you open? Are you open to being rebuked in love for your sin? Or would you be all defensive about it? (laughs) Bite the person's head off. Oh, and do you love your brother and sister enough to speak when they sin against you? Do you love the congregation, love God enough to take sin seriously? Or are you, for example, even now letting somebody's offending you fester in your heart into anger or even hatred? If we're to be a Jesus people, we actually have to love enough to rebuke sin 
and recognise that those who rebuke our sins are loving us. But if we're to be a congregation with clear behavioural boundaries, we mustn't be a congregation, says Jesus, with limits on forgiveness. Peter approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, Peter's actually got the point. The rabbi said that forgiving up to four times was really generous, but that was enough, you know. Uh, but Peter, obviously, you know, twigging to the fact that God doesn't want any one of his little ones to perish, is extra generous. Must I forgive them as many as seven times? That'd make us much more inclusive than the other groups, Jesus. But Jesus' answer is actually crushing. I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Now, Jesus is not saying you actually have to keep extensive records over years to tally up the episodes of forgiveness and send someone a warning when they get to 469, <laughs> right? Jesus is saying you have to forgive without limit. And that is a challenge, isn't it? Because forgiveness is hard. It costs. To forgive a debt is to go without the money. To forgive a hurt is to go without the vindication. And to forgive repeated offence is wearing. It makes you doubt their repentance, makes you think you're being taken for a ride, for a fool. You just want to protect yourself from repeated hurt or repeated damage to the reputation of the community. But the Lord Jesus tells a story to make his point that to belong to his community is to belong to a community of the forgiven that forgives. That we don't have the option of being more exclusive than Jesus is. That those whom he forgives, we must forgive. Now the first hearers would have recognised Jesus telling a story about Gentiles and their kings and the fabulous wealth these administrations could amass. And this king, as you heard, initiates his annual accounting from his servants and he comes to one, as we heard, who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, this is not saying that, you know, he can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? It's not that kind of talent. This is money. And we need to reckon with the greatness of that debt and so we need to do a bit of maths to get a sense of that debt in today's figures. Now, a talent could vary in weight, but a common one had 6,000 denarii, and a denarius was a day labourer's wage. So allowing for a day off a week, a labourer might earn, let's say, 320 denarii in a year, and you could think of that as the basic minimum wage. So in one talent, there were 18 and three-quarter years' worth of wages. In two talents, there would be a lifetime for a labourer of work. That, that's, that's all he get in a lifetime. So 10,000 talents is what it would take 5,000 people on the minimum wages all their lives to earn, 5,000. Or to get a sense of the amount, let's put it another way. The minimum wage, at least 1st of July 2021, 20.33 an hour, 7.72.60 a week, which works out roughly 40,175.20 per annum. So the equivalent buying power of a talent, 18 and three quarter years of a labourer's pay, would be $752,285, almost enough for a deposit on a house. Right. Now, 10,000 talents. 
10,000 talents, get this, is the equivalent buying power of 7,522,850,000. Now that is a big debt. And selling the bloke and his family wouldn't put a dent in it. The most expensive slaves sold for a talent and most a lot less. So this servant is looking at dying in jail. But verse 26, he appeals to the king, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. And amazingly, the master has compassion and forgives him. Now, that would cost even the greatest monarch. And to give you an idea of that, the annual revenues of the region of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, that region combined was 800 talents. So this is 12 years of revenue from this area. But the king does forgive. It's extremely generous. And let's face it, all this bloke has done is distinguish himself by his greed, stupidity and unreliability. That's what the first hearers would have thought, to accumulate that much debt. You must be so stupid. But he is forgiven. And you would have thought that was a life-changing escape, wouldn't you? But he is still greedy and, to be honest, stupid. The stupidity of being preoccupied with yourself. He goes out and he finds a, a, a servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii is not insubstantial. It's a third of the minimum wage, about $13,000. But compared to what he'd be forgiven, it is one six hundred thousandth. Uh, I tried to work that out in percentages, but I'm not good with percentages. There were a lot of, of noughts after the dot, right? <laughs> Anyhow, this other servant, and he's a servant, not of the man, but of the king, appeals to the forgiven servant with exactly the same plea. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But it falls on deaf ears and he throws him into prison. And, of course, if you heard, the other servants are completely scandalised and reported to the king who's enraged. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? You see, the king forgave that first servant a debt he could never repay, but he won't forgive the servant his lack of a generosity that was in his power to show. And then Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now that is clear. God is so clear, isn't he? No matter how many times, no matter how hurtful the offence, to be forgiven is to forgive. To experience God's patience and kindness is to be committed to showing patience and kindness. And it has to be genuine, not show. The forgiveness from the heart that frees from debt, from obligation. The forgiveness from the heart that has embraced grace as the foundation of all our relating. Now to feel the power of this story, you have to reckon with the comparison in what was owed. You see, the Lord Jesus is actually saying that everyone in his community is to know themselves as the greatly forgiven, that we're to think of ourselves as being in the position of the first servant, knowing we have a debt that we could never repay and knowing that it's been forgiven.
And of course that's the truth, isn't it? Scripture says the wages of sin is death and we've earned that wage over and over again. We owe God our life repeatedly. And God's law is punishments for sin. It's not arbitrary, is it? Sin, our sins, deservedly condemned. You see, think of what our sin does to others in God's world. It's no accident, is it, that our world and people's lives are the mess they are. I mean, we're responsible for the destruction of the forest, the loss of species, the desertification of pastures. It's our lives that deceive and destroy trust, our lust that sustains the porn industry and worse, human greed that threatens the sustainability of life, our indifference that leaves others in poverty, our love of power that generates conflicts in the home and between nations. Sin is not trivial. And think of God's goodness to us, giving us life and everything we have, our senses, our intelligence, our abilities. And yet, like the son in the story of the prodigal, as a race, we hate the father who has given us everything so much. We hate him so much that we can't wait for him to die. We want him as much out of our lives as possible. We want to take the good that he's given us and use it however we please wasting it on things he forbids that let us down and impoverish us in the end. Our sin deserves death. We owe God our lives. But to be a believer in Jesus, to belong to the community of the Lord Jesus, is to be amongst those who are forgiven, who have no longer that debt of death to pay, who have been forgiven our pride, our lust, our greed, our anger, our lies, forgiven by God at great cost to himself. Now that cost is not enlarged on in this story, but readers of the gospel know what the cost is. Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 28 that he will give his life as a ransom for many to free us from the hold of sin and death. And the night before he was crucified, we read that Jesus took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We know what it has cost God to forgive us us the death of his son. Now, believer, think, how can the debt anyone owes you compares to the debt you owed God? No one owes you their life because you did not give it to them. How can anything you forgive compare to what God has forgiven you over and over. How can the cost of forgiving anyone compare to the cost God has paid to forgive you? To refuse to forgive, even though it may be costly for you to forgive, is to say that the wrong done to you is greater than the wrong done God. The cost too much because, because what? Your dignity, your importance, is greater than God's, your rights, your justice, more uncompromising than God's. 
At the heart of being the community of King Jesus is each one of us knowing that we are greatly forgiven. Forgiven of a debt that actually exceeds our imaginations to compute. Oh, and it's to know that to be forgiven is to forgive. Now, we will be a healthy community of each, if each of us remembers that every day, that we are greatly forgiven, so that we always engage with each other as the greatly forgiven, engage with grace and patience as those who have been shown that grace and patience, engage as those who have a joy in forgiving because we know the joy of being forgiven. Now, for some of us, that will be easy. We know our sin only too well. We can't hide from the harm we've done others, the way we've failed them. We can't hide from the indifference or the contempt we've shown God. We're conscious of it every day. And each day we're grateful to be forgiven. But others of us at times can be forgetful, preoccupied with our own affairs, unaware often of the impact of words and actions on others, too busy to pause to remember And our gratitude at those times is meagre or absent and our engagement with sin or forgiveness, shallow. And still others resist acknowledging that they are the greatly forgiven, want to think that they're basically good people, people who deserve to be treated well by God, who've earned a place in the king's community by their faithfulness and doing good and want to insist that others treat them with the dignity they demand as well. Now, as well as being self-deceived, they impoverish themselves. They don't know each day the joy of being forgiven people. They don't know the security of relating to the living God on the basis of his grace and not our deserving. I hope you know yourself as greatly forgiven. In Jesus, people, it's not one slip and you're out. It's not, oh, you're in here subject to a trial period and you can stay if you're good enough by keeping our rules. Jesus, people, are never meant to be an exclusive, self-righteous club of those who keep the rules. It's the community of the forgiven who forgive. And do you see how good that is? We don't have to hide sin, be reluctant to recognise it because we fear we'll be tossed out. And we don't have to think that we've got to be perfect to belong. In Jesus' community, you can be real about sin and real about being sinned against. It's a community where you can slip up, as we will, but the slips not be fatal, where sin is rebuked and forgiven. And so it's a community where each of us can actually grow in godliness and we can encourage each other to grow by being real about sin and not tolerating it and always forgiving repentant sinners, a community that can reconcile after hurt by forgiving. So do you recognise that you yourself are greatly forgiven? Is that the way you relate to your brothers and sisters who may well, in fact will, fail you and wound you? Are you longing to forgive them? when they repent, eager to show the generosity you have received. Well, that's the king's community here, isn't it? Boundaried, clear expectations of what we'll all be committed to 
speaking and that we'll all be committed to speaking and acting in conformity with our Lord's instruction and not tolerating persistent sin amongst us. Boundaried, but not limited in our forgiveness because we are the community of the greatly forgiven. This is the community that can bring back the strain, protect each other from perishing from persistent sin, a community that can welcome all the sinners the Lord welcomes, where the repentant can always find a home and encouragement, where the word that saves us is also the word that rules our life together. So let's ask the Lord that we would love each other enough to rebuke sin and do it if we're conscious of it. And let's ask that we would be so conscious that we are greatly forgiven, that we will always gladly forgive. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful Saviour. We thank you for the truth and goodness of his word. We thank you for his love for us that laid down his life for us, that shed his blood to bring us into the new covenant where our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. We pray that we would be truly his people, committed to doing all that he has taught us and committed to showing the same grace and forgiveness that he has shown us and you have shown us in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.